Can you believe it? Is it his time? Yes! Maybe. Yes, sir! From their little studio in South Africa, it's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Hello there, you golf nut, you. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of The Long and the Short of It. I'm Simon Hill. And I'm Dylan Rogers. Nice to have you along for another podcast. And nice yep. to see you back, Dylan. Mm, nice to be back. Uh, nice job on uh, Gentle Ben, si. Oh, Thank you very much. Look at us backslapping here. Uh. <laughs> okay, but we move on. Today we speak to someone I like to call the Jack Nicholas of Rules Official. Yeah, John Paramore. This guy... I mean, 45 years, basically. Yeah. He retired last year, but 45 years as a rules official on the European tour. Yeah, I believe he started the day after his 21st birthday and has been in that space for, like you said, 44, nearly 45 years uh, before retiring last year. Yeah, him and his old pal, Andy McPhee. Yeah. And it's just great to, to have someone on the podcast like John who has been so close to the rules and the changes in the rules and get his thoughts and opinions on, on what's happening with the game at the moment. Yeah, because clearly the, the rules space is a hot topic if you look at uh, how much has been discussed around the distance debate, uh, various uh, rule changes just in the last few years, which hadn't happened for a while, I yep. believe. Yep. Um, it's just, like you said, useful to get someone who is steeped in the tradition and the history of the rules and is well on top of his subject, particularly for you know the, the weekend amateur hacker like ourselves, who, to be honest, probably doesn't know all that much about the yep, rules in the first exactly. Place. So here's our chat with John Paramore, legend of the European Tour. He gave us an hour of his time very kindly. If you enjoy the chat, just a bit of a sell here. If you enjoy the chat, please like and rate this podcast. Please. It helps with things like Google Analytics and other things way above our pay grade. But it does help the podcast and helps get the podcast out there to more people. So if you enjoy the chat, please do like and rate it after you've finished listening. All right, that's the hard bit done. Sit back. Relax now and join myself and Dylan, as well as Dale Hayes, as we speak to John Paramore. Well, John Paramore, welcome to The Long and the Short of It. It's great to have you on. I know you're not doing much at the moment because you guys are heavily locked down there in the UK, but uh, great to chat. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. You're absolutely right. Yes, I'm doing absolutely nothing. (laughs) Firstly, before we get into everything that we want to chat to you about today, let's just get this out the way right up front. Tell us how you and Dale Hayes know each other. He probably wouldn't uh, remember this at all. I don't, uh, don't blame him if he doesn't. But he he played in, in the Sun Alliance match play and I was caddying for a chap called Peter Butler. I was still in the throes of, of trying to work out for myself whether I could play the game and come out on tour. And, and you know, the ideal way to, to do this was to caddy for a golf professional and, you know, observe all of the guys on tour to see how good they were. Thankfully, I found out that they were a lot better than uh, than I thought they were. And so I abandoned any ideas of, of becoming a professional golfer. But during the summer, um, uh, my man Peter uh, managed to play so well and get through to the semi-final of the Sun Alliance match play at Lindrick. And we came up against this very big man from South Africa, and uh, a chap called Dale Hayes, and um, it was a grand match. And uh, obviously, I was toting Peter's bag. Um, and sadly for me, the uh, match went into overtime, and we played three extra holes before Peter managed to squeeze a win. And uh, so that was the first time I met Dale. I'm sorry to bring that bring that up, Dale, but it's um, it was one of those things. But that was the first time I, I actually met you. That's a, that's an amazing memory. I, I I obviously I do remember playing against Peter in that in that semi final at Lindrick. I mean the most wonderful golf course, Lindrick, the most beautiful golf course, one of the the best I played in Britain. And yes, it, it was uh, it was devastating to lose. But um, Peter Butler, as you say, was you know one of those names that a lot of people don't remember. But he was a terrific, terrific player. He played very well at Augusta one year as well. And he really was a terrific player. But John, tell me, so so that's that kind of gave you a start. But then how did you get into commentary? And did you ever envisage that this would be your life? Well, I got into rules really because... I mean, excuse me, rules, excuse me. <laughs> no, I, I got into to, to rules really because having seen Peter and, and people like yourself play the game, uh, I realised that I would never going to be that good. So, um, you know, I was desperate to get something else in golf. 
And Peter knew that I had this sort of weird fascination with the rules of golf. Not that I was any good at it, but, uh, you know, I was, I was interested, genuinely interested. And so Peter, who was on the Players Committee at the time, he heard that the, uh, the tour wanted to expand and find uh, a young man they could train up under George O'Grady and Tony Gray, who were the tournament directors of the day. And he, he put my name forward. I went for an interview with Ken Schofield. And that was in 1976, I think, uh, February. And I started on the 5th of April, 1976, when I was 21 years and one day old. What a life it's been. It's, yeah, <laughs> yes, thank, thankfully, I, I am still going, but uh, sadly, no longer as a, as, as a European Tour employee. That, uh, that came to an end in October. I've kind of slipped into a quiet retirement. And uh, now I can just confine myself to looking at the TV and, and shouting at it when players seem to be getting things wrong. John, uh, looking back at those early days on the tour, you, you mentioned you started with the European Tour in 1976, the day after your 21st birthday. If you look back to the start of your, your, your rules career and to where the rules space in, in golf is right now, obviously very different. How would you describe that? Yeah, very different. Um, you know, it, it's... Uh, uh, I think the current edition of, of the rules of golf is, is, is pretty much on the mark. Yes, there's a couple of small things that, that need to be fixed. Um, but I saw them progress. And I also uh, was involved in the system uh, that produced the rules. And that was fascinating for someone who does have an interest in it. And there were so many protective parts to it, you know, that it, it, it would be dreadful if the rules were, were changed significantly uh, every four years. There used to be a four-year period between the uh, rules books. And uh, if they changed significantly, it wouldn't have done the game uh, any good at all. So it, it all had to be gentle and sensible. And yes, there were some years with, with big changes. And uh, I think 2019 uh, obviously was the, the major, major review. And as I say, I think we're we're pretty much uh, nailed on for a uh, very sensible and, and understandable rules now. You know, you, you, you say that and you, you also you mentioned that there are some changes that, that you know, are going to come in the future probably and, and you'd like to see. What would those changes be? Or maybe I could ask you, if you were the boss for a day, what changes would you make to the rules of golf? There is one that we've, we've kind of struggled with a little bit that because of the change where you actually drop into a, a relief area uh, and and the ball must be played from that relief area, um, it's it, it's kind of kicked up a, a little bit of a problem with the going back on a line relief. And that r kind of needs to be fixed. So that would be my... my my um, uh, Well, that's the one that is being fixed. But if, if, if I was to... Uh, be able to be king for a day. I think I would like to have a slightly stronger and, and stern way of preventing players from using green charts, putting aids, because I just believe it's it's a skill, just like you had immense skill Dale, in all, all different parts of the game, and you could read a green. And I think that is one of the skills you need, not not sort of consulting a, a, a book which tells you which way the green is is sloping, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So if, if I could do away with, with green books and just make it back to a player and his caddy, you know, their, their own interpretation of what's going on, then that would make me extremely happy. And John, where do you stand on the whole rangefinder thing? I see the PGA of America announcing recently that it will allow the use of, of rangefinders in its three professional major championships this year, which is, of course, new. Personally, I wouldn't like it um, because I, I just kind of think it looks odd. But, and Andy McPhee says this a lot, and he's quite right in, in, in what he says. Uh, Andy was also a, a long-term referee with me. And uh, he said that really the, the, the distance thing is, is out of the bag now. And uh, you can get uh, distance from, from all sorts of things on the course and yardage books and all this sort of thing. So, you know, the fact that someone uses some sort of laser to do it or, or some sort of mobile telephone with a, with, with a map of the course on it, I'm, I'm not totally against it anymore. So, um, you know, I've, I've, I've got over my angst on that one. And uh, as, as I say, if, if it comes in tomorrow, that, 
that, that, that is not going to change my life. It's perhaps fair then that uh, we get your thoughts on the general distance debate. I mean, obviously, there's been a lot of discussion for years now, you know, talking about reining in the ball, etc. As a, as a long-standing rules official, what's your view on the distance debate? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think, Dylan, that the game has certainly changed uh, in, in terms of, um, I, I'm sure, sure Dale will, will comment, but it, I think back... Uh, in, in, in previous years, in past years, sort of sort of pre probably twenty oh five, players could move the ball quite a lot, and the golf ball didn't really go as straight as it does today. And part of the art was you used to rein back your power to try and keep the golf ball on the golf course, because if you went at it hard, you know there was a fair chance if, if you slightly missed it, the ball would go a long way offline. Mm. You didn't want that. And so, you know, most people kept a little bit in reserve. But today, because the golf ball seems to fly straighter and the, the faces are, are, are quite helpful uh, to, to players and firing it uh, straight, um, I think, uh, you know, they're just hitting it almost full power. Well, certainly, you know, Bryson is, is giving it one, one enormous hit. And, and there are several others who do actually whack the ball so hard and it's uh, so, yeah, that, that, the game has changed. But saying that, I'm also uh, someone who believes that there, there should be improvements. You know, if we were to dampen down all of all of these improvements, um, then then that would not be a good thing. So, yes, you know, balls have started going a bit further. Uh, but a lot of it is is down to the fact that the ball has gone straighter and therefore is hit harder. And uh, so... At the moment, I know that the uh, both rules bodies are looking at it, and they did put a line in the sand several years ago, and uh, they might draw another one. But you know, I I don't want to. I hope it doesn't stifle ingenuity, um, um, but I also hope it doesn't, as so many people say, make golf courses um, uh, make them too easy to play. But. To be honest, I've never come across anybody who's given up the game because they said it's too easy. <laughs> John, you know, funny enough, I was watching the um, the tournament last night at uh, on the PGA Tour at Riviera. Great golf course, held, held, a, held a US PGA Championship. The first hole, Rory McIlroy, par five, hit a, hit a uh, hybrid in an eight-time, and DeChambeau hit an iron off the tee in an eight-time for his second on a par five. You know, <laughs> It, it's just crazy how far how far these guys are hitting it. But I agree 100%. You know, the trouble is you don't want to have two separate rules. I'm sure you agree. And you also don't want to make the game more difficult for the 99.9% of people that play normal club golf. I think that's the critical thing. You don't want to make it any more difficult for them. Absolutely right, Dale. Yeah, you don't want to... Uh... I mean, you can imagine going to a pro shop. So can I have a golf ball that doesn't go so far? That doesn't happen. <laughs> but I mean, if you look at how the game's marketed, people tune in to watch Bryson DeChambeau bomb at 400 yards. Uh, it's all over the marketing. It's it's how these big brands leverage their clubs. So it is very, very tricky. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. John, I just want to change tack a little bit here and discuss, because if people aren't sure... Perhaps, you know, rules officials generally like to be behind the scenes as opposed to in front of the camera, but if they aren't sure of your pedigree, I just want to go through it quickly. 18 Ryder Cups, six as chief referee, five President's Cups, chief referee of the 2016 Olympics Golf for Men, 25 Masters, 22 PGA Championships, 29 US Opens, and 29 Open Championships, and over a thousand tournaments as well. I mean, that is, that's a a serious resume. Good Lord, is that me? <laughs> uh, no, sorry, oh, that's Andy goodness. McPhee. Sorry. <laughs> and uh, and only one wrong ruling. <laughs> oh, oh, I wish. I wish. And, John, uh, I think you should, uh, John, I think you should go to bed for a rest. <laughs> You're right, Dale. At least this, this pandemic has, has allowed me to do exactly that, which is good. But, I mean, this is, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot, and it's probably very difficult, but... You know, looking back at all of that, what tournaments and, and moments they stand out for you? I, well, I would hardly like to 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 take one one moment. Uh, I will, obviously, um, uh, but 
I've had so many, uh, Dylan, you know, it, it's the reason that I've gone on so long, uh, because believe me, I have made a few mistakes. Uh, but the reason I have gone on so long is, is the fact that I've loved what I, what I do and the people that I've been surrounded by. Um, you know, I've, I've got some great friends all over the world, um, you know, many down in South Africa. And uh, it's, it's, this game is, is like no other uh, in that it provides the opportunity for you to, to meet and exchange pleasantries with an awful lot of people. You know, I've, I've, I've met five members of our royal, royal family. I've met four heads of state. You know, I'm a referee, for goodness sake, on a golf course. Why, why would that happen? It's because the game uh, engenders that sort of behaviour. You know, you, you, you get to meet these people. And it's, and it's something very, very special. And um, I, I suppose if you're asking for a, for a golfing memory, um, then there, there was a situation at the 2000 Open at St Andrews Obviously, I'm a big fan of, of uh, St. Andrews as a golf course. And I got to, uh, to walk with the last game at the Open. They have walking uh, referees and also uh, 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 sort of appeals referees driving around on buggies. This was kind of one of the last years that I was walking. And, um, and I had the pleasure of walking around with a chap called Tiger Woods. And, and, and uh, he was uh, playing with David... Um, uh, what's his name? <laughs> I've forgotten his name now. That's dreadful. And um, it's David Duval. I'm, I do apologize, yeah. but they played incredible golf. I mean, they were they were leading by quite a distance. David blew round the front nine in I think thirty one strokes, and suddenly Tiger's lead was was no longer. And uh, I think they were tied as they went went up ten. Uh, that's when Tiger smashed one on the green and, and made his uh, made his birdie, and then he he knocked it on the green at twelve as well. That was that was quite something. But to see two guys at the very height of their profession playing absolutely brilliant golf around around a classic old golf course, I don't think they were bringing it to its knees. But my goodness, the shots they hit were truly magnificent. And David was, he was crestfallen when, when Tiger drove it on uh, the 12th hole, uh, having, you know, hit it on 10 as well. And I think that that really gave him a bit of a, a bit of a sucker punch. And I think he, he then was kind of resigned to the fact that, um, that, that you know, he's not going to win this Open. And he ended up, he dropped a shot at, at the next. And uh, when we're coming down to the 17th, I think Tiger is, is quite comfortably ahead again. And um, sadly, uh, David just um, uh, turned one a little bit left at the 17th, the road hole into that bunker. And um, it, was, it was a surreal set of circumstances because the crowd actually broke through by the 16th and second green, they came through and they they were charging up the 17th fairway. One, it was a frightening situation. Tiger had managed to walk ahead and he got uh, pretty close to the green. So he was kind of pretty safe as a, a ring of stewards sort of surrounded him. But I was just back with David and, and thinking, oh, uh, we don't have anybody here. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I kind of put out my, sh my shooting stick to the side and some other chap came and grabbed the other end of it. And I thought, oh, I am grateful to you. But I had no idea who he was or anything. And uh, funny enough, I met him about uh, 10, 10 to 12 years later and he was a member of the, the RNA who happened to be there. And uh, he could see that there was, a, there was a problem and we needed to protect uh, David uh, Deval from all these all these charging fans, but it was it was I think the first time I realised how uh, popular um, people like Tiger Woods and David Duval had become, and how desperate people were to see you know Tiger Woods play and, and David play. That was one of the best moments to see all of these people 
they were not violent, even though, you know, the, the sound of them uh, running along that, that 17th fairway will remain in my mind for a long time. John, I think that would have been just about bang in the middle of the, the, the famous Tiger Slam as he went on to, I think he won the PGA later that year and then uh, in the Masters the following year. But um, you would have seen, uh, obviously, you know, debate about the, the greatest player to have played the game, whether it was Nicholas or Woods. I want to ask you, what's Tiger like as a rules player, meaning his interpretation of the rules and your dealings with him on specific rulings over the years? I think he's got a, a pretty good idea of, of, of the rules. But, you know, yeah, I've had a few few dealings with him and, and particularly early on in his career. And um, having sort of walked around with him at, at the Open, and I also did him at the World Match Play, which is a tournament that I'm sure Dale will remember, at, uh, at Wentworth. <clears throat> don't have to bring that up, okay? <laughs> yeah, yes. He was very young and very powerful and hit the ball very, very hard. But he, he played Marco Mira and, and lost to Mark in the, in the final. But he, um, I thought, you know, he, if he ever learns to, to um, his distance control, he will win everything. And uh, sure enough, a year later, I think was the open when I walked around with him and I thought, yeah, he's learned this distance control. All right. And, uh, and I thought, yeah, this, this guy's got such a game and he's, and it's, and it's such a, you know, powerful action. He, if, if he can learn the distances, then he is going to win everything. And he did. You talk about Tiger Woods. Okay. The, the <clears throat> previous great player, of course, was Sevi. And you had a lot of interesting rulings and a lot of interesting times with Sevi Ballesteros. Yes, I have, Dale. He's um, obviously, uh, uh, Sevi was my hero growing up. You know, I, I, when I was caddying that year in, in 75, uh, the second event I went to was the Spanish Open. And uh, Sevi was playing in that. And uh, so was Arnold Palmer. Arnie won in the end. Um, but Sevi finished in the top 10. The, the kind of rumour going around was, this kid is really good. You need to have a look at this kid. So I made the effort to, to once I'd finished caddying, go and watch him. And I saw this guy play and I thought, wow, you know, this is, he is, again, something special. And obviously, you know, a year later, he's, he's starting, I think, at the Open. He, he proved himself. And he also, I think, won the Dutch that year. And, that, and then he was off, you know, tremendously winning tournaments all over the world. But yeah, Sevi had uh, a kind of natural talent. And um, I'd have to say that on one occasion, almost certainly I gave him relief when I probably wouldn't have given any other player relief. And only because, and I, I'd seen him get into situations where most people would say, you know, time out, there's no way you can play this shot. Whereas I've seen Sevi take on a shot like that. And he used to do that quite frequently, hitting shots off his knees, you know, under bushes, left-handed, um, anything. You know, he, he would try it. And, and he was great about getting the, the club head onto the ball. I'm saying the club head because he didn't always use the club face. And um, he, he, was, he was quite special. But there, there again, um, you know, I, I did give him relief on this one occasion. And, and it was... It was something that he was asking for. And as I say, most players wouldn't have even asked for it because they, they would have known we would have said no. Um, but Sevi showed me how he was going to play it. And I thought, yeah, actually, that's reasonable. So I gave him relief. But I suppose the, the biggest thing is, is when you come up against your hero in, in the most, I suppose, poignant of, of circumstances. And it was the, uh, the last tournament in 1994 uh, the last tournament of, of the year, the last day, the last hole. And um, so it, it's it's pretty final as far as the 1994 season is going. He he was uh, level with uh, Bernard Langer, who'd, who'd finished about five, ten minutes before. And coming down 18, he, he carved it off the tee behind a tree. And around the tree was a hole. And um, back in back in those days, in 1994, the hole had to be made by a burrowing animal. Obviously, if I had given him relief, he would have been able to drop away not only from the hole, but he would have also been able to drop away from the tree and would have had a fairly clear shot to the green and could have had a chance to birdie the hole and win the tournament. Or, you know, he almost certainly would have made a par uh, and got in the playoff. 
you know, the, the, the contents of the hole was, was a thing that was interfering with his stroke. I was looking at this hole and I'm thinking, you know, I can't see any evidence that that's actually been made by a barring animal. It could have been made by any animal. And so after about 20 minutes of considering this and, and various taps on the back by Sevi, what about this? What about this? I had to say, I'm sorry, Sevi, but I can't give you relief. And so he ended up chipping out sideways and, and lost the tournament to Bernard Langer by one stroke. So it was, it, it was fairly big news because I think in, in, in the United Kingdom, uh, they'd had some pretty rough weather. And this was the first time, and Dale will understand uh, this very well, uh, the BBC, um, who are our biggest um, sort of national network, um, they, um, they were covering that golf tournament for the first time ever, an outside broadcast being filmed by other cameras. And because there was no other uh, sport on that weekend back at home or, or nothing was, I think most of it was rained off, the golf was sort of centre stage. So uh, unbeknownst to me, I'm, I'm giving this ruling with Seve and it's going to a lot of households. And a lot of people felt quite strongly about it. They thought that, you know, I'd stood up to him well. But it wasn't a case of standing up to him. It's a case of, is he entitled to relief or not? And I felt that in the circumstances, no, he wasn't. It wasn't a hole made by a barring animal. Well, John, you're actually lucky to be alive today because, I, you know, we've all seen that, that footage and the look that Seve shoots your way as you walk <laughs> off. If looks could kill, oh, my word. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a good job I'm six feet two and 18 stone. <laughs> there's, also, there's also a great moment there where he, uh, you, you stick your hand in the hole, um, John, and, uh, and Sevi puts his hand on, on your arm and says, uh, careful, there might, be, there might be something in there that might bite you. <laughs> yes, he did. He said, you know, be careful, it might bite. Uh, and I, you know, I, I had to control myself from, from, uh, from actually laughing out loud, but... Uh, yeah, he was he was that sort of guy, and uh, yeah, he, he he took that you know quite well. And then the next time I saw him was actually at the Johnny Walker in um, in Jamaica, which was a sort of made for American TV uh, event, loads of prize money and and top players from from both the United States and Europe. And uh, I ended up sitting next to him for the team photograph. Uh, they wanted a photograph of all the players and me in the middle. And who should be sitting next to me? Seve. And the last time I've seen him, we were looking into this hole. He leant over and he said, you know, I have no problem with uh, what happened at Valderrama. I said, good, because uh, nor do I. And, uh, we, we kind of shook hands and just carried on. So that was, uh, that was it all over and done with. Well, he took it pretty well. One guy that didn't take it well was Ian Woosnam with that extra club in the bag because you presided over that as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did. That wasn't um, that wasn't a great situation, you know. The caddy. Well, first thing, I mean, you, you understand that at golf tournaments, there, there are many of the uh, manufacturers who provide test clubs, and they try to get different clubs into players' hands. I am a li little bit mystified, and I'm, I, I've never realised why. Maybe Dale can shed some light on this. Ian Woosnam was one stroke at, uh, one stroke behind um, going into the final round, so clearly he must be playing pretty well. And I have no idea why he was trying a different driver on the practice ground just prior to going out to play. Probably the biggest round in his life. It was a situation whereby the chairman had asked all referees, please do not ask players to count their clubs um, because it's normally met with, um, with a bad response from the player. I don't want you to uh, have to put up with that bad response. So don't ask the players. They should be, as they've told us in the past, professional enough to count the clubs on their own. Also, raw Lytham starts with a par three. So the chances of Ian Woosnam finding an extra driver in the bag is kind of slim. And uh, he hit a fantastic tee shot at the, uh, at the first hole. Absolutely stone dead. I mean, it, it nearly went in. And so he's, walk, he's now walking to the second tee and the caddy puts the flag back and he's obviously seen in the bag that there's this extra driver because he's, he's going for the driver for the second tee. He made an expletive and he said that Woozy's going to kill me. And I had no idea what he was talking about. And uh, so he rushed off to the second tee 
and I could see he and Ian got into a conversation. And Ian just sort of slumped a bit, turned around to me as I walked onto the second tee. He said, what's the penalty for for a 15th club? I said, have you got one? And he said, yeah, I've got an extra driver. And uh, at this stage, he'd, he'd taken it out of the bag. I said, well, it's, it's two strokes. And uh, I said, you, you know, you've only played one hole, so, um, so it doesn't count on the second. And uh, so he took his two-stroke penalty. The driver was sent through the air about 30 yards into a gorse bush. <laughs> and, uh, and we carried on. But you could see that it was, again, it was a bit like the David Duval situation at, at 17th at St Andrews. It was a, it was a real hammer blow. And, um, and all the sort of excitement, the, the compatibility, if you like, if that's such a word, came out of him at that very moment. And of course, he then drops a shot at the next, and, and you know, then it was really too far to get back. But it was, yeah, I, I didn't really enjoy that. But um, you know, again, it has to be done. It seems it seems that you know uh, some of the rules have been altered to try and help players from making those silly mistakes. I mean, I think all of us older people will remember Roberto De Vincenzo at the Masters way back in in 1968. When he made it, he clearly made a three on the 17th hole. Millions of people saw it on television, but his playing partner, Tommy Aaron, wrote a four on the card. Therefore, that four stood, and he lost the Masters by one shot. And then um, at uh, uh, Royal St. George's, uh, Mark Rowe, a similar, similar sort of incident. Don't you think, though, you know, part of the game is that the players have to take responsibility for those, those sort of things? Yes, they do. But uh, you're quite right in, in saying about the De Vincenzo um, and obviously the Mark Rose situation. You know, thousands, maybe more millions of people had seen the score that was actually taken. Why is that that piece of paper uh, that the guys, you know, the scorecard, why is that so important? It, it is really, it's, it's the only way that the player can agree what he has done and his score. And so, therefore, it is most important that, uh, you know, whenever you are signing your, your scorecard, you must check that those scores are the right scores for the holes. That rule has been softened a little bit over the years. Uh, it still uh, carries a pretty, pretty tough penalty. You know, if you don't get your score right, you are disqualified. But the sort of things that have happened are... If you uh, make a mistake because you don't know a particular rule and you fail to add in that penalty, uh, in days days gone by, that always used to be a a penalty of disqualification because you'd obviously signed for a wrong score in the previous round. Or indeed, if you've failed to add it in and you've actually left the recording area. As soon as you've left that recording area, no further changes could be made. And so, therefore, you were disqualified as soon as you walked out. For years and years and years, uh, I campaigned. um, I'm I'm saying I, but I must say the initial ones came from Tom Watson, Jack Nicholas, and Ian Baker Finch. But I was kind of inside those meetings when when that uh, was coming through. And we tried for years and years and years to try to get that change, that if you incurred a penalty in round one, you should be allowed to to add it in, provided you didn't know you'd incurred it. You should be able to add it to your scorecard and keep on playing. And um, so eventually, um, it took something around 20 years uh, to get to that point. It was changed and it was changed to, OK, we'll allow you to put in the penalty, but we're going to give you an additional two strokes for getting the scorecard wrong. So at least the disqualification had been modified to two strokes plus the penalty. Well, of course, then uh, we had Lexi Thompson, who had a very, very short putt. Uh, it was literally a tap in, but she was this was the third round, the end of the, uh, the, the third round of, of the first major of the year uh, for the ladies. And um, and she thought, well, you know, I'm going to be professional. I'm leading by a couple of shots. I'm going to make sure, even though it's just a tap in, I'm going to make sure that I'm going to replace my ball. So 
the dots that I always use for the um, the impact, line it up with my putter, is in the right space before I tap it in. So she does that, and the cameras give one of those really close-in shots and show that she doesn't actually put the ball back in exactly the right place. And so someone spots it, some viewer spots it, and sends, I think, uh, uh, some sort of uh, text message or something through to the LPGA, but that wasn't picked up until the following morning. So we've now given you the situation. Lexi has incurred a penalty of two strokes by incorrectly replacing her ball and not correcting that mistake. So therefore, she's got th- those two strokes and two strokes for the incorrect scorecard. And as I say, it wasn't spotted on Saturday night. It was only on Sunday when the round was kind of in progress that this was spotted. And now Lexi, bless her, is, um, I think she was three shots ahead at the time. And so officials had to go out onto the golf course and say, Lexi, sorry about this. They explained the situation. We've got to give you two penalty strokes um, for the infringement and two for getting the scorecard wrong. So it's a total of four strokes. Well, as I say, the putt was an absolute tap-in and it did not look great. Bless her, she played she played great. She made the playoff, but then sadly lost the playoff. But from a from a PR perspective, if you're promoting golf, you know that is that is one of the worst things that could ever happen. And um, I think it's fair to say that uh, Mike Wan from the LPGA, soon to be USGA, he had a meeting with my boss at the time, Keith Pelly, and Jay from the PGA Tour and the other. Uh, representatives from the major tournaments around the world and he was apoplectic he said this is ridiculous you know this girl she'd made a tiny mistake which wouldn't have really affected her at all and she's getting a four stroke penalty that is not right if we're going to promote this game because it it makes us look silly Mm. he was quite forceful in the way he put that forward and it's the first time i've ever seen the rules bodies really scramble to um, to have a situation where we could we could form a committee very quickly and do something about this and something was done and uh, albeit it did take three months but it was changed so that in future that uh, two-stroke penalty was not going to be uh, applied the original infringement would just be added to the score and you'd carry on and also at that uh, at that time, we all agreed that we should be watching our own output so that we actually see any errors made by players before the spectators or the viewers see uh, these errors and, and then let us know. So, so then message the public, the viewing public, look, thanks for all your help down the years, but now we don't need it any longer. Thanks again for the, for the past few years, but we're now going to be proactive in watching our own pictures and we will uh, we will not be taking any phone-ins. Over the years, have you found that, that players generally have got better in terms of their knowledge of the rules or is it getting worse? And as an example, do you find that players call you out for, for a ruling when it's pretty simple and they should actually know what's going on and if it's a drop or something simple, just simply do it and, and, and get on with it? Because pace of play as well is, is also a major concern and something that the, that the bodies are looking at. You are quite right. And yes, we do get called far too much these days. And, um, and I, I don't think it's because the players um, are lacking the knowledge I think they actually know what, in, in most cases, they know what to do, but they are frightened to make a mistake because uh, certainly in years gone by, that mistake would cost them two strokes. And if you go back even further, as I was just talking about, you could end up being disqualified. So if you call an official in, into a ruling, it means that you know you have the golden parachute because no matter what happens, you, you, know, you are not going to get penalised. Of course, if you've already committed the sin and you've already got the penalty, then the, you know the, the official coming along is not going to help that. It's, that is not going to go away. But from that point forward, anything you do will not cause you to be penalised. So it, it, it's really a, a, a safety net for the players. Um, that's why they, they, they call us out. But it, it's, it's quite interesting because in the European tour, we, we started introducing a a kind of rules exam, a very, very simple and straightforward rules exam for the players. And we wanted all of them to to take it. And I, I developed it with uh, with Andy McPhee. 
Uh, and they were they were just general questions because we were trying to get guys really into the the simple rules to get them to do them on their own. Um, because, as you say, the if, if they're going to call us out for every simple little thing, you know, dropping off a cart path or a sprinkler head, then I'm sorry, but the pace of play is is going to be further wrecked, and um, we've got enough problems on that score as it is. Okay, well, one guy that, and you knew this was coming, one guy that uh, isn't shy of making a call or doing things his way is Patrick Reed, who's been in the news for all the wrong reasons recently, not the first time as well. Your thoughts generally on how he approaches the rules of the game and, and how he plays the game? Okay, I think I think the, the first thing I'm going to say is that Patrick was extremely unlucky the other day for all of the criticism that came his way because he proceeded absolutely 100% correctly. Unusually, admittedly, but he proceeded correctly. Uh, He is allowed to uh, determine whether he is entitled to relief. And in so doing, you can lift your ball. You're not allowed to clean it. And so he put it aside so he wasn't going to be tempted to clean it. He, he did that the right way. Then he wanted to determine whether the ball was embedded. He couldn't determine that on his own, so he called an official back in and said, is this embedded? The official mm, said it was, and so Patrick was allowed then to clean his ball and take relief. But if the official, and I think most others might have seen that the ball wasn't embedded because clearly on the TV it bounced before it ended up in the position it was, then he would have had to have replaced that ball in that lie, exactly in that lie, without cleaning the ball. And if he'd done that, there would have been absolutely no penalty at all. As I say, he proceeded correctly. But a couple of times in in relation to improving his lie in sandy areas uh that was not the right thing and whether he did it accidentally uh or deliberately only he will know um but um you know guys managed to uh, get into bunkers and for years they've managed to hover the club head above the sand and they're still required to do that incidentally um um so that you're not gaining any information from the sand immediately uh, behind your golf ball. You know, his ball was not in a a bunker uh, in either case. And uh, he, shall we say, had a rather exaggerated backswing. He would claim that it, that, that it wasn't, but, you know, let's go with that, that it wasn't an exaggerated backswing, but it did remove sand from behind his ball and there and thereby improved... Uh, his his area of intended swing and sand is is not permitted to be removed anywhere except in the special case on the putting green and uh, so you're not allowed to move the sand and, and and it's clear that with his backswing he did this and he was penalized in both cases but he felt that you know he wasn't improving his lie by doing anything sinister he felt that you know he was just unlucky but those sort of things stick. And uh, once you've got a reputation um, for, shall we say, being, can I use the word cute uh, <laughs> with the rules of golf? You know, that, that's, that's, you're always going to be charged with the worst, even if it's totally innocent. Yeah, I think the thing so, with Patrick and the farmers, sorry, Dale, just, just, just to wrap this up because it has been analysed to death, but I think the thing with Patrick and the farmers was that he'd removed his ball from its original position before it was analysed by a rules official. Now, I think that's the thing that everybody takes issue with. You're perfectly allowed to do that. And what's more, something he did do, which you now don't have to do, he informed his playing partners that he was going to do that. I must say in the professional world, I think most pros would do that. But you're not required to um, uh, announce that intention to lift the ball, provided you mark it. Um, so you can lift it at any time. Um, but um, it's basically because, you know, the, the rules of golf bodies believe that intrinsically people are honest. And, uh, you know, why should we insist that they have to give the chance you're playing competitor to come along and have a look what you're doing you know they they don't come in necessarily when you're in the trees and you know not in sight just to find out what you're doing they don't do that so they thought well let's you know take that situation forward into the uh, the lifting the ball 
And uh, so he didn't have to announce to his playing partners that he was going to do so. And he could have determined whether the ball was embedded or not himself. He just felt that because it was close, he wanted to use an official. And by bringing in the official, he wouldn't uh, be making a mistake. You know, it was everything was was he, he did it correctly. But unfortunately, Nick, I think Nick Faldo made made a bit of a thing of it. And then it, it kind of spread like wildfire. But no, I, I'm saying as, as a referee, he did it right. Your favourite tournament, if you had to pick one tournament that you'd like to work again, your favourite tournament, your favourite country, and maybe your favourite golf course, if, if there's one course that you'd like to play, and, and I, I'm sure, I think you're going to say St Andrews. Yes, so I if you are, I'd like you to pick two. Okay, and uh, the other one is, is uh, somewhere which I also believe you, you know quite well, and that would be Cran-Sourcière. Basically, I love that golf tournament. I love the town. You know, they have changed the golf course. Seve was asked to redesign it and make it more difficult. And he certainly did that. Uh, but funny enough, Seve was very good at chipping the ball. And he designed these 18 greens that all rejected the ball. So, so guys were forced to chip it. So it, it really became a very different golf course than from one, the one that you would have played. Um, yes. You know, it was it, it's just a lovely atmosphere. And the, and the Swiss people that, that I've known, they've never changed. You know, they, they all want to sort of empty your wallet, but in such a nice way. Oh, how kind <laughs> of them, yeah. Uh, you've, you've likened the job of a rules official to that of an emergency doctor. You sit there with your radio waiting for a call. Often nothing happens. But, but then you get a call and you think, oh, my God. Is this the one I'm going to get wrong? You know, looking back, and I mentioned all the tournaments and events that you've been involved with, were there any, obviously the rulings that you get wrong, obviously you're human, but were there any major rulings that you got wrong looking back? I, I still have nightmares about a ruling I gave to Simon Kahn, funny enough at Cran-Saucier, and it was incorrect. It was a very involved and technical ruling, but um, I, I felt strongly that, you know, the, the answer to it, sadly, was disqualification. And I'd, I'd have to say in, in my defence that uh, all of my colleagues wholeheartedly agreed that that was the right course of action. But it was a little tweak within the rules of golf, a little tweak that was made that if in all that he managed to drop his ball, then that changes the ruling completely. And I had, I had not realised that. And um, so I have disqualified the guy. And then two weeks later, I get, I get a note from my, my, my friends at the RNA saying, you know, we've been looking at your ruling in Cran-Saucier. Can you give us your, your view? And, and, and as, soon, as soon as you're, you, you get that sort of letter, you know, uh -oh. oh, God, I must have got it wrong. <laughs> and, um, and, and I did, you know, and, and, and they uh, told me, and I, I wrote a very um, huge letter of apology to, to Simon Kahn. And, uh, you know, it still does keep me awake at night. You know, I will never, ever, ever, ever forget that. And, uh, you know, I feel awful about it. John, what about the uh, 2013 Masters ruling with the 14-year-old Chinese golfer Tian Langguan? Uh, you seem to get a lot of heat uh, for that ruling, penalising him a shot for slow play. Do you ever think about that one? Yeah, but not not too much. I mean, uh, you know, the, the most things that, that concern me about that is the fact that this poor young man has probably never um, been taught about pace of play. And um, to be fair, my, my uh, friends and colleagues from, uh, from Asia told me about him, that in the qualifier, he was unbelievably slow. And um, I, I did suggest them, did, did anybody advise him of this? And there was, you know, lots of murmurings and what have you. So clearly they didn't. And um, so he pitched up at Augusta. And, and, and I kind of, I hadn't remembered at the time about this particular young lad. But uh, what happened was Bernard Langer came through the tents and his group were a long way out. So the first timing referee went with them. And then the next group came through and it was another slow player, another slow group. So the other uh, timing official had to go with them. I was a rules rover sitting there with Michael Bananak. So Michael Bananak, he was sitting there in his nice green Augusta members coat. 
and I'm sitting next to him, I can tell you it was quite a squeeze on the buggy with both of uh, <laughs> our rear ends. Um, but we, we were sitting there. And of course, the next group comes through the tent and is also out. Admittedly, we were forewarned by the people on nine. Um, but I had to go to them. And I said it was um, uh, Matteo Manasero, uh, Ben Crenshaw and Guan, Guan Ting Liang. And, um, and I had to explain to them, listen, guys, you are... You are out of position. Uh, the groups ahead of you are also uh, out of position, but you're out of position with them. Um, so um, I'm afraid um, I'm, you know, you're going to need to step it up a bit. And they all understood and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll do our best. So they went down the 11th hole. In the meantime, I've rung uh, Fred Ridley, who was the uh, competition chairman. And I said, Fred, I've got this situation. I'm a rules rover, but... This is the third group that's come through consecutively and it really needs timing. Would you like me to do it? And he said, yes, please. So we watched them play 11 and they lost four more minutes, <laughs> which is not great when you've just asked them to pick up time. <laughs> Gee. So, so on the 12th tee, which is never a good place to start in Augusta, <laughs> um, I said, guys, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to uh, start timing. And um, it... Uh, I, I did, and on the twelfth was okay. I think as they walked off the twelfth tee, I told them I was timing them. Um, but um, on thirteen, the second shot into thirteen, uh, Guan took uh, an inordinate amount of time to play his second shot, uh, which was a layup. And um, so uh, I had to give him a bad time, you know, because maybe this would help him realise that he needs to speed up a bit. And um, the other two were fine. You know, Manicero and, and Crenshaw were, were kind of, well, Manicero was very quick. And Ben was kind of, you know, he was, he was in the upper reaches of the numbers allowed, but he, he wasn't going over. So um, anyway, this, this young man had a, something approaching a minute um, to play this shot, and it was a layup. And so then he walked off, and, and he didn't walk slowly. He just, when he got to the ball, he just took a long time. So there's me in my, my uh, jacket and tie, and I've got to try and, and catch Guan before he reaches his ball to tell him that he's, he's got this bad time. And I think it's fair to say that it can get warm down in Georgia in, in early <laughs> April. And uh, I was striding out as quickly as I could because you're not allowed to run at Augusta. So I was giving it the speed walk, trying to catch him. And uh, that proved to be quite difficult. But by the time I did, he was almost at his ball. And I said, oh, oh, that's one bad time. And um, <laughs> he, he kind of looked at me strangely. I said, he, he said, what, what does that mean? I said, well, you mustn't have another one. Otherwise, it will be a stroke penalty. And I said, do you understand that? And he said, yes, I do. Well, I can tell you in the next uh, two holes, he would have had potentially another four bad times, but I kind of let him off off with them. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to avoid giving him that penalty. But we got to the 16th tee. He was second to play. Poor old Manicero had, uh, had dumped it in the water um, in front of the green. Uh, and then it was, it was Guan to play. And... Um, all I can tell you is he was taking so long that I got my phone out and I rang Fred, got through to Fred and I said, Fred, we're on the 16th tee. It's now a minute and 40. And I said, and he hasn't pulled a club yet. Uh, how do you want me to handle this? He's already got one bad time. And he said, hmm, can you give me a couple of minutes? I said, well, yeah, I really would like to tell him before he reaches the 16th green. Uh, and it's a par three, as you know. Um, and uh, he said, yeah, I'll ring you straight back. Well, sadly, they, the players walked past me and Manicero played from the, the end of the tee, knocked it up onto the green and the three players walked around in their caddies towards the green. I'm thinking, telephone, please ring, please ring and, and tell me what to do. And Unfortunately, they'd reached the 16th green um, by the time the call came back. And the advice was, please, can you speak to him one final time before he hits his tee shot at 17 um, and, and make sure that he fully understands what's going to happen if he has another bad time? And uh, so I did. 
And uh, as he walked off the 16th green, I called him over. And I explained to both him and his caddy. His caddy was a local guy from um, from the Augusta area. And I, you know, I said, "Look, you you can't you can't do this. You need to play shots a lot quicker." And um, you know, he, his English was was well enough. He could understand what I was talking about, and he did manage to hit his tee shot in forty three seconds. So that's okay. And they walked up to uh, where the second shot area is. Ben played first, Ben Crenshaw. And then it's Guan. And he decided at that stage he wanted to walk to the top of the hill and come back again to see where the green was. Didn't do it while Ben did it, because Ben did it as well. But no, he waited for Ben to play shot, then he went. And uh, But I thought, no, I'm not going to be churlish here. I'm going to land that chance to go up there and come back which he did. And as soon as he came back, I started my stopwatch. And I noticed that Fred and the uh, young man's father were on the rope line. So I held up the stopwatch to them. I wasn't even looking at it. And as Guan was preparing to hit this shot, and when he finally hit it, it was well over a minute. So that was a bad time. And um, so I, I said, to Fred, he said, "No, you've got to, you've got to do what you've got to do." So I went to him and I said, "Look, Guan, you've uh, had your second bad time, uh, and that is a one-stroke penalty." And um, he said, "But I, I, I had to go to the top of the hill." I said, "Yeah, I didn't count that." I said, "It's a bad time from the time you got back to the ball," and then it seems that um, his English uh, disimproved. And, um, and you know, he didn't like it. So, so I kind of said, you need to play, continue play. We'll speak about this later. I was always going to take them off on the 17th green. So uh, I watched them finish out. Guan uh, did manage to play the, uh, the putts up at the green in a reasonable amount of time. But uh, after the round, um, he clearly wasn't happy. He wanted to speak to, to Fred Ridley, who explained that everything had been done correctly. And he was going to get his one-stroke penalty. The one thing that I was hoping uh, against all hope was the fact that he was going to make the cut. And there was a putt, and I've, I've never rooted against a player before, but there was a putt. I think Jason Day had a putt on the last green, which would have put Guan out of it, would have uh, made him miss the cut. And no one was more pleased. Um, I think Fred also, he felt the same way when that ball hit the rim of the hole and spun out for Jason Day, because it meant that Guan had made the cut. You know, the 14-year-old had, had done it. So that's a good thing. Um, did, I, did I have nightmares about it? No, not at all. For me, one of the toughest questions, you know, I was saying to somebody the other day, in I, my 10 real years of playing, playing on the tour, um, I never, ever saw anybody cheat. But I also never looked. I never watched the other players. You know, so it was something that I never, you know, even thought about. Do you think that happens much on tour? Is there, are there, are there in your time uh, uh, a few instances of people that actually blatantly cheat? Uh, thankfully, very few, Dale. And, um, and you know, I'm, I'm a bit like you. I... I I don't go over and inspect what my playing partners are doing very closely. So uh, if anybody's playing with me, go ahead and cheat if you want to. Uh, but no, if it, it's, I don't think in in professional professional golf, many people look at what their their uh, fellow competitors are doing. The one thing I would say to that though is, if you do something wrong or what is perceived to be wrong, then then you are normally watched fairly closely you know we 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 had many years ago uh, a, a player i think uh, you will remember from spain who was accused of not replacing his ball correctly and uh, it was it was more his it was more his carelessness than than any desire to to gain any advantage i mean i had it put to me that he was dropping out of spike holes and onto a good bit of grass placing sorry and I said, look, I'm, I'm finding finding it difficult to understand how on a 40-foot putt, if he's moved the ball three millimetres, that it's going to make a huge amount of difference to the putt. This particular week, there were no spike marks on the green. So you think, you know, what 
there, there has to be some other reason. And it, to be honest, he was not, he was a bit careless. There's a Japanese player who's been pulled up a couple of times. And I think it's really his method. His method looks suspect when he's replacing the ball. So therefore, guys, watch to see if it is being replaced correctly. And I think because of the method, he does occasionally get it wrong. What, what is the future hold for John Paramore? Well, Dale, it's, it's funny you should ask. I, I was going to slip into a fairly quiet retirement. I had started penning a book. Um, don't worry, it's not going to be um, any any bad exposés at all. Uh, really just uh, extolling the fun of, of what's happened. What do you mean, don't uh, worry? I, that's That would be brilliant. <laughs> yes, I know, but I'd also end up in court. <laughs> but... Um, so, so it, it, it will be uh, hopefully looking at the the funnier side of things that have happened. Uh, and then I got a, a, a contact from the RNA out of the blue. Uh, I was lucky enough to be become a member uh, a few years ago and uh, very honoured to be so. And um, they have asked whether Andy McPhee and I would uh, take on a role to assist uh, with a new referee qualification that they're hoping to uh, roll out um, probably early next year. And it's a, a, a situation whereby it's, it, it's a stage beyond the, the toughest uh, examination they have, which is a level three examination. And uh, if you pass level three, you know what you're talking about. Um, but does that make a good referee? No, it doesn't. There's a lot more to it than that. And um, so we, um, we're going to be involved in, in being ambassadors for the RNA in, in rolling that out. And it may involve, uh, we haven't finally di- discussed it, it may involve us actually going out and, and testing some, some referees. You know, we'll, we'll work out a, a test paper on how to, to get guys qualified. And, um, you know, it, it will not be as easy as, as, as just passing the test. You know, there, there are other things involved. You know, you, you, the, we have guys in the past um, from the uh, local federations who've come out and who are dying to penalise a player. And, um, you know, they, they have no conception of what's going on or, or, or the fact that, you know, each and every one of the players who's turned up has probably invested in the region of, you know, four or $5,000 to get there before he's seen any money at all. And to get money, he's got to play, you know, really, really well. So there's a lot of pressure that these guys go through. It's not, you know, we all see the Tiger Woodses, the Dale Hayeses, you know, who've, who've done so well uh, and, and, and played play golf and, and made money from it. Um, and, you know, they are lucky. They're fortunate, you know, and they and they will, you know, not well, not in your case, Dale, but certainly in Tiger's case, won't need to work again. Um, but there is, um, you know, referees need to understand professionals are at, and it's, you know, it's it's a tough game, you, you know, and you need to you need to referee with that in the back of your mind. I think it's brilliant, John. Lastly, from my side, the strangest rule in your opinion that's still in force in the game today. I, I, I'm, I firmly believe that there aren't too many strange ones. Uh, obviously, in, in the professional sense, everybody would like it to be totally based on skill. And, you know, we try and, uh, when I was in my previous role with the European Tour, we try and prepare golf courses so they were incredibly fair. So it's really down to the player's skill. But there are so many other things which are used to be known as rubber the green, but other circumstances where... You know, you get lucky, you get unlucky, and uh, it's amazing how many how many players uh, only seem to have bad luck. I think it's really uh, not the case. I think everybody has a, a has a just as much good luck as they do bad luck, but they don't actually recognise it. We've heard about you know balls being uh, deflected out of bounds. I will also remember that one with Johnny Senden at uh, at Carnoustie. He blasted it right, and he hit a hit a grandstand on the right, which was over a, a water hazard, as it was then. It then ricocheted straight across the fairway very, very quickly and was going speedily out of bounds when it hit a metal fence post, which is probably five centimetres wide at the most, and stayed in bounds. And, and, you know, you think 
there's good luck, bad luck, good luck, <laughs> and uh, all all in one stroke. And I think that's the beauty of the game. I know Dale wouldn't like me saying this. Sometimes you've got a tight pin over water and, and, you know, it's slightly into the wind and you've taken all this into consideration. And then just as soon as you hit it, the wind just gets five miles an hour stronger. And you see that ball, sadly, just failing to make the carry and disappear into a watery grave. You know, that that is golf. And it's how you deal with that situation. Because you're not the only person who's going to get bad luck. That clearly is, is a terrible piece of luck. But it's going to happen in a round of golf. You're going to get a little bit of bad luck. Mm. But golf tests you. How do you react to it? I was just thinking of Mark James hitting that seagull at St. Andrews. <laughs> Ricocheting yes. out of bounds. Yes. There's an example of really, really bad luck. Uh, John, thank you. We're going to wrap right. it up. Thank you for giving so generously of your time. And, and, and good luck with... With that ambassadorial role within the RNA, I couldn't get anyone better for the job, I don't think. You and Andy. Thank you very much indeed. And uh, to my old mate, Dale, thank you. I, I've watched you over the years. You're, you're an even uh, greater, greater commentator and uh, you keep us informed. And um, I, I noticed now that you go around in a cart and that's, I think that's very wise. <laughs> there it is, a win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.